foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. This is Katie B, and you are about to listen to an early episode of my podcast. Now the show is called The Move Your DNA Podcast, and you can find all episode transcripts and the show notes to this episode at nutritiousmovement.com slash podcast. Enjoy. I hear hundreds of toilet paper being plopped onto the toilet seat behind You're them. You're the worst. I, yeah. Welcome to the Katie Says Podcast, where Danny Hammett and Katie Bowman talk about movement, tiny details, the larger issues, and why movement matters. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist and author of Move Your DNA. And I'm Danny Hammett, a chronically curious movement teacher. Today's episode is chock full of back questions from the mailbag. Okay. If it involves your spine, uh-huh. yep, it's probably in the podcast, hopefully. We'll try. We'll do our best. Okay. You want to just jump in because there's a whole bunch. Yeah. I mean, we'll get, get, get through them as many as we can. Okay. This one is from Heather, and Heather asks, When I'm doing a calf stretch, I have to keep my foot that's on the floor at least three to four inches behind my foot that's on the half dome. Otherwise, I find myself clenching my quads, thrusting my pelvis, and locking my knees so I don't fall over backward. But when my foot is that far back, I don't feel any stretching in my calf at all. Is there? Is it still doing me any good? Well, I mean, sure. It's it's movement. It's it's you know, words are again they're tough because that name calf stretch. I guess it, it implies that the purpose of it is simply to do this, you know, this activity called stretching. But we use it to really show, to let you experience how your particular amount of dorsiflexion that you've got. So just for those listening, what she's talking about is, you know, you've got one foot up on a dome. So your ankle, one of your ankles is like going uphill while mm-hmm. you take a step forward with the other foot that's not going uphill. And you begin to see as you try to step forward, 
how much the tension in your leg that is now going uphill is is pushing you backwards or creating a, a particular I don't even know how to say it. It's, it's creating a particular set of forces. And so what you are becoming aware of, you know, what, what is valuable is not just the calf stretch, but it's, it's the recognition that when your foot goes into dorsiflexion, when your ankle goes into dorsiflexion, that there's a whole, that, that, that amount of tension in that lower leg is enough to shove you backwards. And what you're finding right now is how far you can step forward, keeping everything relaxed. And so you're, you're playing in that space and it's not, it's not necessarily a calf stretch that we're after. And it's also why the feeling of a stretch, we don't use a lot of feelings in our program, just meaning, you know, like, should I feel it here or where should you should well, feel it? It's, there? it's elusive and seductive to it, use those terms. It's very challenging because not everyone processes sensation right. or experiences sensation in the same way. Some of us are very good, especially athletes, right, who've been trained to almost desensitize the way their body responds to a particular repetitive thing. And so we don't yeah. really do that so much. It's more like what you are seeing is you're not feeling a stretch, but you are seeing your ability to be in dorsiflexion without this huge copious amount of tension in all other parts. So the fact that you are dorsiflexing one part of your body while relaxing the rest of you, that's a new movement that you're not used to. So again, the, the name of it, like the, that's my problem, my fault is that the naming of things, because you have to, we have to call it something. Sure. I, I could stop calling it thing. And as I've, I've moved definitely over my career more and more into the use less names, just use larger descriptions of the thing to clarify. But then things get longer, right? Now you have to sure. read more and more and, and get rid of the names and the categories of so many things because they're good in the beginning for ease, but then they get us kind of jumbled up. So don't worry about it. If you can't feel it, you're, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing the move in the whole body way that it's intended. So don't worry if you don't feel stretch, I guess. Yes. And that's in the back. That is in the back mailbag podcast, I think, because so much of what's happening in the rest of our body, including your spine is going to be coming through your feet, right? Is that why you pulled it? Right. Uh, yeah, because it's never just the thing. Right. You know, you th you think it's the calf, but it's not. It's not always just that. And the the train goes a lot farther than that. I think. Yeah, that's why I pulled it. I thought it was interesting. Well, and I think it's only in whole body barefoot that I noted. I wish I could have a copy where I'm noting. You know the the the. Ex acceleration of your upper body kind of the curve of your spine the repetitiveness yes. of the of the tension the set of forces that end up shaping the adaptations that are of the soft tissues that make up our body so much of the spine is created by what's going on in the in the lower leg so i think that's the only book that i've noted it because it's kind of a complex physics thing but you know oh i just found it you want me to read it real fast yeah, I can't even reach my bookcase from where I am. <laughs> it's a stretch break. Whole body barefoot. This is page 59. It says calf stretch. I often say if I could make everyone just do just one stretch, it would be this one. There's a few reasons. 
The first is that our calf muscles are chronically shortened due to the heeled shoes and sitting. I'm kind of like chopping out words that I would normally say. Second, your calf muscles have some of the greatest responsibilities when it comes to keeping you upright and mobile, critical for the endurance of standing and controlled walking, which is the opposite of, quote, walking is falling. You need your calves to be in tip-top shape. And thirdly, but not finally, the tension in your lower body while walking has a whip-like effect on the top, meaning the superior parts of your body. So if your feet are the most inferior, closest to the ground, your your upper back and your neck and your head, those would be the most superior parts, the farthest away from the ground. So the tension in your lower body can, if you've ever cracked a whip, you're accelerating the top part over. So meaning your upper spine and head can be unduly accelerated by tension in your calves. And it says, have you ever seen a wave break? Well, here's how it works. A section of water comes to shore at the same speed, but as a wave approaches shallow water, the inclined seabed slows the bottom of the wave down, causing the upper part of the wave to accelerate right on over, and that's what causes a wave to break. So now picture a gait pattern where the lower part of the leg is slowed down due to tension between the foot and the shin. What happens? The shin is slowed down relative to the whole body, accelerating the upper body over the slowed bottom half. No biggie, since you can compensate by simultaneously firing opposing muscles to keep that forward motion from happening. But what you end up with is a walking pattern that requires constant tension in your upper back and neck with every step. So that's why, you know, she's doing the calf stretch and it's and she is practicing breaking up that tension in the neck. If, if your calves are so tight that your other foot is not really even ready to stand Mm-hmm. You know, it's we would call that like a rear, a negative stride length. You are practicing breaking up this relationship of dorsiflexion and tension. Like just it's a it's a natural byproduct to keep you from getting a small kind of whiplash injury with every step. So you're practicing. You're you are moving those parts in a new in a new way. And it and it will for those who are working on, you know, I have a neck thing or a head thing or upper back thing. That's why we start with the feet. Yep. Always start with the feet. Yeah, I like your books, but I like them even more when you read them. I know. So. I'm sorry. Like, that was obnoxious. I just read <laughs> no, that was good. I like it. Foot. Okay, that was good. All right, this next one is from Caitlin. She writes, I've been following your work for about a year now, and it's really made a big improvement in my lower back, hips, knees, and feet. But my upper back, neck, and shoulders are still trouble areas. You've mentioned hyperkyphosis a few times, but I was wondering if you could have a podcast about it. <gasps> And maybe provide some strategies for mobilizing that area. It's your lucky day, Caitlin. Yeah, except, you know, the shoulders, the shoulders are, are much more complex. Like I've written a lot of books and the reason it's so much easier to write about the feet and pelvic list. Those are very linear, a lot of times kind of simple places to start. It gets much more complicated to, to talk about all of the planes, like writing about mm-hmm. movement is very challenging. It's very challenging. It is really well, best. I'm sure it's really challenging just to talk about it in a podcast. I mean, it's... How can, I mean, like, now, now we don't even have pictures. Really, truly, the best, <laughs> the best way to learn about movement is in a movement class with someone moving in front of you, giving you feedback on the way that you're moving and integrating their mm. explanation of it. So that all being said, everything is kind of second to that. Although through really great writing and great visuals, I, I can see, I mean, a lot of people are able to move much more 
and much better. So it's definitely not something to throw out, but it's just to know that sure. that shoulder girdle becomes a lot more complex. And so, and even your really bad drawings are helpful. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think I have put out way more information on the lower back, the knees, the hips, and the feet because the corrections are more linear. They're easier to write about. So as far as like if you were only following my body of work, you're gonna it's gonna be much more sparse on the on the upper part of the body relative to the lower body. Mostly because I mean there's a difficulty issue of writing about it, but also because so many of the corrections of the upper body are are anchored by what's happening on your lower body and and trunk and trunk. And so diastasis recti. It's either the best or the worst titled book of all time. If you have diastasis recti, <laughs> you're like, amazing, a book written thank just you, thank for you. me, not like a sidebar <laughs> in a book about core strength. I kind of flipped it around, but my sidebar in diastasis recti would be, this is really the book that helps you start working on the thoracic hyperkyphosis because that it's really, there's a lot of shoulder stuff. It's, There's a lot of, and we get, I get a lot of like emails about that. Like yeah. people are so like, tickled and kind of thrown off at the same time yeah. that they got a book about diastasis recti and it starts with the shoulders. Again, you have to you call know, it something. It, I have to call yes. it something, but what I call <laughs> it does not know what it is. Like my name is Katie. Right. That gives nothing about what I have inside of me. Right. Like all these words, like we're just getting tripped up and we're, we're mm-hmm. letting the words, we're judging books by their cover and- until we can go do away with a cover, we just have to go, oh, those are the words. I'm going to read it first and then go from there. So I would say that that the diastasis recti is is my hyperkypho. It's the, my most hyperkyphosis book to date because it really starts with like you have to anchor the ribs to a very strong to a strong trunk before moving your arms around will help kind of like start unfurling that thoracic spine. And so if you haven't checked out that book, just change diastasis recti to hyperkyphosis and the re- just sure. know that the reason you're following that protocol is, oh, because I'm going to, you know, if you're, that hyperkyphosis is excessive forward curvature of the, of the upper back, right? So right. when we go to correct it or stand up, we just take that same curvature and just displace it. So what we need to be able to do is hold the bottom of of that thoracic curve down so that when we go to straighten up, we're able to change the parts that make up the curve relative to themselves rather than just changing the whole curve relative to the ground. So head ramping. Which is really hard to picture listening mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really recommend that book because it's so hard yeah. until you can see a diagram and drawing and and understand the mechanics of that. Not to cut you off, but it's just... I, th- I think she should read that book. Yes, but ribs down and head ramping are the two simple things that you can start right yes. now. But then you are, it's having stability within the trunk, meaning like that, like ribs down, being able to maintain your ribs down while you're moving is trunk stability. It means that you're able to stabilize the hinges in your spine that when you stand up, you don't have to displace a large portion of your spine. That would be a place in which it was not very stable. So so I would say core strength is the, I hate that term, but it's necessary right now. That's the next section. It's like you you get your feet, you get your legs, you get your trunk, and now you're ready for just the shoulders. 
but uh, but the shoulder mobility and the scapula placement and the leverage for the muscles that are going to connect to those upper vertebrae really depend on all the parts below. But until then, ribs down, head ramped can be a, a constant mobilizing force of that area. And also in the in the virtual class membership, there are a lot of classes on this, on these moves. Like these moves. Oh, are, that's right. There's a yeah. ton, and that's the place where I've probably because it's. It's easier to write about the legs and the knees and the hips because they're more simple structures. When I do teach live, I focus a lot of live teaching time on the on the on the more complex hinges. So you'll see a lot of head, shoulders, arms. They make up a larger bulk of that classwork because we just need to get down deep into those. And it's yep. the easiest place for me to teach it is uh, moving. And we'll link to those because that's that to sign up for the virtual classes because they're awesome. Or even alignment snacks. There's a, I mean, there's a free alignment snack just on some of the shoulder stuff. So make sure you're taking advantage of all the resources that are already out there. It might not be in podcast form, you know, again, I don't know. I I don't think I could teach movement via podcast. No, I don't know. I don't think so. It'd be like trying to say I could teach physics or geometry via podcast. So I think the podcast is really a tool that I use to kind of go a little bit deeper into the more movement-friendly like video supplements that I already have. So make sure that you've checked those out because that sometimes that's the easiest place to be like, oh, got it. I understand. Yeah. All right. All right. Here's one from Zoe. Can you post pictures and discuss good technique for carrying kids on your back, on your shoulders, or two kids at a time? Hey, you have experience with that. <laughs> My shoulders are killing me and massage and corrector- correctives are not enough. I'm hoping to recruit a neighbor kid to help me herd the kids on a walk, but any tips for when I can't would be helpful. It's just a compilation of all the all the tips and videos that are out there, right? So on YouTube, there's some shoulder stabilization, you know, checking to make sure that you're not subluxing or that you're, again, you're able to stabilize various parts of your body when you hold. There's the rib sliding, baby carrying. And then on Instagram, you know, there's various posts of me doing it here or there showing, you know, like I've started to have my son stand in my hands, you know, having someone on your back, you're leaning forward quite a bit. So playing with like standing more upright and having them stand in my hands, make sure you go through those photos. But again, it's not so much like the tips, they're not baby or kid carrying tips as much as the same stabilizing the same parts of you, whether you're standing or carrying heavy loads that in your case, the heavy load just happens to be one or two kids and variation, right? Constantly varying, varying up your holding, even if it means that you're taking, you know, for every two minutes or three minutes of holding, you're doing one to two minutes of walking, letting them walk and switch. I I get a lot of mileage out of like holding, okay, I'm going to set you down for a second while I do this other thing. And they're just walking next to me. They know they're not getting back on, so they're not whining to be picked up again. And then I put them back on. So my carrying them is like a lot of me just really picking them up and putting them back down again, peppered with bouts of them walking. So, mm-hmm. so it's like a, it's like a, it's like a CrossFit workout that you do as you move from point A to point B. There's lots of lots of movement happening. And recruit friends. Yes, that's that yes, is the that's ultimate tip. That's the ultimate tip. Yep. Okay, let's see. Lindsay writes, I love your podcast. I've been struggling with upper back, thoracic spine, tightness and pain the last several years. I weight train regularly and am not very sedentary. 
I struggle with rotation and feel lots of restriction when I try to, I'm assuming, rotate mm-hmm. your arms out. I also do not have full shoulder flexion. Any suggestions? Super supple shoulders course. Which is an awesome. That's a great. Awesome. Yeah, yes. that's oldie moldy, but it's still, yeah. I think, pretty valuable. Way. The alignment snacks for the shoulders. And again, VCM, because it's going to go from like the trunk all the way up to the head and out through the arms. So yeah, the check, start checking out those those movement classes designed specifically for you to assess and change some of your shoulder mobilities. Yeah. There's a lot of good snacks for that. VCM, you're so cool. Listen to you. Throw that out. Oh, yeah, VCM. VCM. All right. Mary wants to know, what are your thoughts in general? Oh, gosh, this is a big question. Okay. What are your thoughts in general about practicing yoga? I've been practicing yoga since I was 18, but recently I've had severe back pain for several days after yoga class, and I had simply been doing postures I have always done. Since I'm now 62, I wonder if I'm simply too old for yoga. Thanks for your thoughts. Well, the only thing I can speak to would be like the physical component, which is a very small component of yoga. So I'm assuming because she's talking about yoga class that she's talking about like simply asanas at this juncture. So I, I, I mean, in the body of my work, I'm just kind of talking about that there's likely a spectrum of types of movements that you need throughout a day, throughout seasons, throughout your life. I don't know if the mode that you get them in matters too much, meaning whether you get those movements in the form of yoga or through dance or through cycling or whatever, like that you're getting particular components of what you need, but that it could be like, for me, the way that I see, like she's doing the same thing that she's always done And now she's got pain from doing the same thing that she's done. So either something else has changed or the accumulation of what she's done has led to this particular Mm -hmm. scenario. So I would do the same thing as diet. Like it sounds like you've got like you've got some nutrients that you're used to eating, but you need to consider the context and when which like those nutrients have been you like you've been consuming them. So I've written about it in Move Your DNA where it's like. You can have lots of great foods, but if they are in the absence of other foods, you can still get a particular disease. You know, vitamins and nutrients, you can't consume them exclusively. So I don't, I would say that my recommendation for anyone practicing yoga with regularity would be the same for anyone doing anything with regularity, cycling, running, our correctives, like doing, you know, like say they're doing the, the nutritious movement, multivitamin vitamin every day, that step one is to look at the context in which you're like, how sedentary are you? And to decrease that sedentary time and to not categorize yourself because you practice any move exercise regularly, that you are still very likely sedentary. So start dealing with, with that period of time first. And then, then you actually look at your nutrients and go, Am I getting from this nutrient what I was intending to get from this particular nutrient? And that's where mm. that's where the idea of every movement having a particular form comes in. Because I would say most people giving movements would say that there's a particular form in which you are to do the movement if you are to reap the benefit of that movement. 
sometimes the form in which someone is doing something doesn't match up well with what they intended to get out of it. And so we have a lot of information, I would say, on that going, oh, like like I just I just broke down downward dog in the virtual class membership the other day. Not from a yoga perspective, but if you are given this particular exercise because you're trying to improve your shoulder flexion and you're trying to improve your hip flexion and you're trying to improve your dorsiflexion, then these are the very subtle joint positions you want to make sure that you're doing if you are to extract those particular benefits from this move that you're doing. So so I think that a lot of times people can just make over the way that they're doing their practice of whatever they're doing versus scrap their practice altogether. I'm all for people doing, you know, the thing that right. they love doing. But again, it's about it's about the larger context. You know, I think we're really still we're still stuck in that hour exercise mentality and might be missing the the broader message, which is. There's so many you, so many things to do in the other 23 hours that if you weren't interested in in approaching your exercise practice, even you could just approach it from your relationship with sedentarism. Or if you really feel like you want to just work with that hour of those exercises, then check out some of the more refined assessment tools that we have so that you can make sure that you're moving the body parts that you wish to be moving. That's my recommendation. And I don't think you're too old for yoga, no. I don't no. think our bodies get too old for movement of any type, really. No. See dynamic aging for that one. Yes. I yeah. You know what? That would be good to check out dynamic aging and mm-hmm. how would doing the correctives and dynamic aging pair well with which are not, which are to help with the, the finer refined movement about particular axes that we might be missing in general movement practices where we're not paying so much attention to how each hinge is moving, and then it also addresses the sedentary context that most of us are living in. So that would be a good, a good, a good pairing. It go, it would go like a fine wine with your yoga practice. <laughs> and you're never too old for fine wine either. Okay, all right. Karen writes: We spend a lot of time bending over to pick things up, tie shoes, etc. I imagine it'd be best to vary movements to get low and reach down. As in maybe do a lunge to pick up something, squat down and switch it up by forward bending with legs straight from the hips to grab the thing. But is it true that our backs only have so many deep forward bends that they can safely do in a lifetime? I ask this because the instinctive, seemingly quickest way to get the job done is to bend over with sometimes bad alignment for most people. And I have a herniated low back disc and so noticed that after I forward bend, I do feel a bit stiff in the back, even if I try to maintain good alignment. Well, is so the question is, is it true our backs only have so many deep forward bends? Right. I don't, I don't think that there's a... No expiration date on that one? Well, I mean, again, it's like, oh, that question, those, like, it's always void of context. You know, like bending over 20 times to pick something up. That is different if you're an otherwise entirely sedentary person or a person who moves a lot but only takes in repetitious types of movement. The effect of bending forward 20 times is different in each one of those scenarios. Mm -hmm. So... So the question is like, do we only have so many? F- I don't think we. On- I don't. I do not think that we only have so many movements of a particular type. 
like full stop. However, I do think that, man, I don't know. I don't know what I think. (laughs) I feel, I feel like there are total ways of moving that when you do them in their exclusivity can tax your tissues in a particular way, in which case do you only have so many particular like repetitive ways of doing a single thing before you notice a symptom of doing right. a I single think thing? That's yes. the answer right yes. there. You, and, yeah. you just got it right there. So I, that's, that's, so yes, I, I do think that, but that's, those are, you, you have to appreciate the difference in those two contexts that I was talking about. So to think like, Oh, I only have so many bends in a particular way, but I was like, that's, that's your set. That's the sedentarism. Like that's the effect of, hardly any movement at all. And and the fact it's also the effect of convenience and the fact that everything that you need is always going to be in exactly the same place. It's like your environment, your sedentary environment, and I don't even think that you can extract them from each other, right? You're sedentary because of your environment. It's facilitating a very limited amount of total motion and how much of you is actual moving, actually moving. So yeah. again, it's not, I think it's an inherent it's not a movement issue, but well, I mean, it is a movement issue. I don't know. I don't, I can't talk about it anymore. I think I've said all no, I have I, to say I, on it. You did. And I think, I think that's her answers. It's right there. You did it. Okay. Mike asks, my wife has been suffering vertigo for over a year. According to our doctor, the vertigo is likely the result of an inner ear infection. She's been going through vestibular therapy, which seems to be helping my question is, can the vertigo symptoms be affected by her hyperkyphosis? I don't know. Believe it or not, that is not the first question we've had of that. Well, I think, you know, fluid pressure, you know, so I think as I understand it, a lot of vertigo has to do with inner ear pressure, which can be, you know, fluid in the inner ear, but... You could also change pressure through tension, right? Like I, I can increase the pressure in my intra-abdominal cavity, my thoracic cavity, my pelvic floor cavity simply by squeezing. I can create motions that are going to change those pressures. So when you have hyperkyphosis, and you have to think of like, like a quick anatomy, a quick podcast anatomy lesson, <laughs> is like you've got your thoracic chamber, right? You've got the thoracic cavity, and you've got your spine going up through it and, you know, your thoracic spine. And then you've got your cervical spine. So you've got the spine. And like again, these are just word, like there is no. These are just words that we call certain areas of your spine when they when they look different to us, we give it a slightly different name. You know, it's like it's just it's, it just gets more and more arbitrary the longer I'm like thinking on some of these things, but, but then you have your skull and then your skull is articulating on the top of your first vertebrae. So when we talk about hyperkyphosis, it's rare that you only have hyperkyphosis. A lot of times you will also have hyperlordosis, which is an excessive amount of, it's like your upper back goes way forward, but your cervical spine then to compensate goes like way back. So you get kind of a hump to the upper back because where those curves change is pretty extreme, right? So that's going to increase the pronounced, the how pronounced that particular curve is. 
So I would say that you are very easily playing with the pressures of your inner ear simply by chronic head position, which is brought about by spinal curvature, which is brought about by how tight your calves are. Yeah, so I would say that, like, I don't know if I could link it specifically to anything, but I think that it is very viable that your spinal curvature can be influencing the pressures in those areas. Okay. So that would be as much as I would know to answer on it. Okay. I have a quick question. Do you think if you could just give, say, one book to read, would it be the DR book for for back stuff? Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about Mike's wife and her. No, but not for her, just but level. for anybody that really like if if they just were gonna to digest one book. Do you think that's the for most what? for for back issues? You, uh, you know, again, it just it just depends because a person coming from a bodybuilding background with a back, like a back issue, like what does that mean? Right, that could I be suppose. pelvic yeah. floor, SI joint. It could be shoulder. It could be neck. It could be headaches. So, I mean, there's an, That's there's true. an art form, like it's very challenging yeah. to, to write books where all the information is really, every single person requires these things concepts to be written in a unique way to be as closely aligned to the, to their body of experience and the state of their body and what they can do like that is the reality is every person needs it exactly the way that they need mm -hmm. it and all i can do is write it i can i can imagine all those various scenarios but at the end of the day I can only write it in so many different ways. So part of like what we're doing is like educating to kind of see how to how to answer your own questions by by learning the concepts of what we're talking about versus the oh I see this exercise for this ailment, this book for this person. So I mean, for hyperkyphosis, it could be dynamic aging, right? Where you're just working on like like head hanging and head ramping, which really isn't in a lot any other books. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know. Final answer, I don't know. Final okay. answer, I don't know. That's good. You can extract what you want out of that. Okay, this one is from Sarah. She writes, what are your thoughts on using an SI support belt during pregnancy? It's been recommended to me, but I'm afraid of using a crutch or orthotic and having my muscles become deconditioned. I'm also not confident it will help. I tried one for a few minutes with no change. I mean, I've answered this question, I think, on various probably pregnancy related podcasts. We've talked about this one before, but like my thoughts, I don't really have a thought on, <laughs> on what people use. I think you're done. I think you're ready for a break. Concern is more about recognizing how they work. So if someone is, is very sedentary, doesn't have any time or interest in like to bring in the correctives that would function as an SI support belt. So you have SI support. Your body comes with SI support, and that's your musculoskeletal system. It's really, it's, it's, I mean, it's your body. The, it's all the other parts of your body. It's not even the musculoskeletal system. It's all of it. 
Mm-hmm. Every every one of your body parts is supported by all of the other body parts. So you come with support equipment. It's about the conditioning of that support equipment. And so what we are talking about here is a transition of your entire body to be able to support all of the functions with your body. Like that's our overarching theme. That all being said, at the same time, we recognize you live a life that does not allow for the behaviors that develop a physical body that is able to support itself, um, you know, in a basic structural sense, as well as, I mean, having the parts to deal with all other things that kind of move, you know, like move us, whether it's temperature or, I mean, we, we just function in, in a kind of very certain way. And we're talking about stepping outside of that. So if an SI support belt makes is like a, you could think of it as a bolster. Like if you need to have it Mm. so that maybe, maybe you're like, I would really love to do, you know, some of the exercises over, you know, that in like, I want to start with my feet. I have a new baby. I want to start. I'm ready to start. And and you've been so deconditioned for so long that standing up is enough for pelvic pain. Then use the SI boys, like mm. use use that support. If it, it's just like it's just like any other blanket under your shoulder piece, it's a bolster. It's a it's a oh, tool. Okay. My point to it, the completion of my thoughts, is to recognize those tools for what they are. They are providing support to your body externally that your body could could possibly be generating if you were to have different behaviors. So transition, I think, is a real key concept to recognize that we're talking about transitioning and lots of bolsters and supports are necessary. Lots of time is necessary, years, decades for transitioning. And so to me, I just see all that, all those as like, there's no, it's like, again, non-dualistic. It's not, they're not good. They're not bad. It's just how are they being used, you know, and do we do we see the broader context of everything are really my only points. So, okay, so use it, use it if you want to and just recognize what it's doing and then look at other symptoms of weaknesses, because if you have three or four or eight or 12 symptoms and the SI joint support belt is fixing one of them, but there's 12 other things. And maybe if you recognize that the 12 things are all related to the strength of your lateral hips, then prioritizing your lateral hip exercises go, Oh, I can see now how that one chunk of time for these moves actually translate over. Like it's the payoff is very large, but we're, we're kind of reverse engineering that understanding. So. Yes. A satisfying answer. That was good. Okay. One last one. Mm. This is from Ashley and whose question we answered a few podcasts ago, and she wrote to share good news. She writes, hi again. Thank you for answering my question in episode 71. Just wanted to let you know that the answer really helped. She was writing about twisting. She and her friend were coming up with ways to, they couldn't do the twist. Mm. So just wanted to let you know that the answer really helped. And my friend came up with the brilliant idea to preserve the endangered movement of twisting by putting the toilet paper roll on top of the toilet behind her back. Smarty Mm. friend. Wow, that has really gotten us twisting multiple times a day again. Thanks again for all you do. I'm on my way to being able to clean my house and go on hikes without SI joint pain. Yay. And without a belt. 
Maybe. Yes. So, so that's very, you know, like, I love that. So I hadn't even recognized my toilet paper being in front of me as a convenience or a movement saver. Plopping it behind you. There sure. you go. You changed your environment. And now, now that's non-exercise movement. When you reach back to get your toilet paper because you made the change to put it back behind you, you just increased the non-exercise movement of your day. So you did two things. You incorporated a twisting motion, but two, you transitioned your brain and your environment to facilitate the movement for you where movement was the natural response, not the unnatural. Choosing to do things less efficiently, you know, to add movement is kind of an unnatural human thing right now. So you made it you made it more in line with your deepest inner workings simply by modifying your environment. So well done. Yes. I, I hear I, love it. I hear hundreds of toilet papers being plopped on ah! the toilet seat behind that. You're the worst. <laughs> I, yeah, like it's all I didn't even I didn't, actually that was totally accidental. I know, I know. Yeah, it was just I can just like of course that's just a very simple way. So so well done. You 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 solved multiple. That's a movement matter solution right there. Big time. Did, that's big time. So big thank time. you, Ashley. Ashley, you just helped hundreds of people. Well, mm-hmm. well, your smart friend did. Three people listen to this. Your yes. parents, my parents. <laughs> so anyway, you actually you my parents a, don't listen to it. A so multitude of people. Oh, that's okay. awesome. All right, that was cool. Great. That is all. Right. all. Thanks for listening. For more information, books, and online classes, you can find me at nutritiousmovement.com and you can find more from Danny Hemmett at moveyourbodybetter.com. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.